You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 9th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jane Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, everybody. So, Evan, what do you got for today? All right. November 12th, 1935. The first modern surgery on the frontal lobes for the treatment of mental disorders was performed by Agas Moniz at Santa Maria Hospital in Lipson, Portugal. Santa Marta. What did I say? Santa Maria. Did I say Santa Maria? I know that rolls off Isn't the that tongue. Weird? It's, <laughs> Isn't that It's like deeply programmed. Santa Maria, yeah, the Nina the Pinta, Santa <laughs> Because I am reading it right now. It says Marta, and I was, <laughs> sure enough, at Santa Marta Hospital in Lisbon, Portugal. Lisbon. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Uh, Moniz is sometimes referred to as the founder of modern psychosurgery and the developer of leucotomy, more commonly called the lobotomy. The prefrontal lobotomy, yeah. Moniz injected absolute alcohol into the frontal lobes of a mental patient through two holes drilled in his skull. Moniz later used a technique that severed neurons and led to the prefrontal lobotomy techniques of the 1940s. And he was later awarded a Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1949 for having done these horrible things. <laughs> Once it re- and uh, these sorts of radical surgeries kind of fell out of favor once psychoactive medication became available in the preceding decades. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to be judgmental, you know, looking back from our current perspective about things like frontal lobotomy, but it definitely was a different time. This was pretty much in, in the age before there, were, there was any effective medication for psychiatric disorders. And many people had extremely severe, you know, conditions. So, you know, also the the attitude at that time was very different than it is now. And again, I'm not defending or justifying that, but it was the views towards mental illness and psychiatric patients at the time was definitely almost barbaric by comparison to our modern views. You know, if you were mentally ill, you, you weren't really treated with the autonomy and informed consent and all those, you know, all the things that we take for granted today. There was, since then, there's been a slew of, you know, ethical reformations in psychiatry, you know, really transforming how we, how we approach and think of those patients. So more than half a century ago, you just got to be careful not to uh, judge yeah, them too yeah, harshly. Judge people, yeah. you know, from the perspective of our own time from, as opposed to their own time. Definitely. You have to take it in context. I always think uh, in a few, two or three generations, what are they going to look back upon like this decade or this generation and just like be aghast? Like, oh my God, can you imagine they did that or they believe that? Uh, other sorts of therapy that were going on right before the lobotomy uh, included insulin shock therapy, uh, cardiazole shock therapy, and electroconvulsive therapy, which were all, well, by comparison, lobot- the lobotomy procedure was considered a relief yeah. in, a, in a sense instead of a patient having to go through all these other... They would also... Oh wait, wasn't it? They would also do these uh, like cold wraps. They would suddenly wrap somebody in a in a cold, wet blanket, and they would calm them down (laughs) because it would just so physiologically shock them. Yeah, those those are considered reasonable therapies. Electroconvulsive therapy has that that was fairly effective. It still is. I mean, that is a that it it was effective, but 
but extreme, and uh, it's evolved over the years. You know, went through various stages. I think we've talked about this before, where instead of inducing a seizure in both hemispheres, you do one hemisphere, then you only do one part of it, and now they're using magnetic induction instead of electrical stimulation. But it is a fairly effective treatment for severe refractory major depression. And you, you, know, you can do it now without you know, having people actually have a generalized seizure. So it's much more, uh, much more humane, and the, the side effects are much less than they used to be. I mean, you still don't want it if, you know. It's, you know, it's really like for people who can't get out of bed. I mean, like their <laughs> life is basically, they have zero quality of life. They're, they're completely debilitated with depression and they're not responding to medication. That's who gets that kind of procedure. By the early 1950s, there were almost 20,000 people who had lobotomies in the United States and 40,000 in Great yeah. Britain. But uh, those days are gone. Yes, thankfully. Uh, you actually sent me the first news item tonight. Uh, give us the, uh, the quick story on the rugby player who, uh, well, I'll, I don't know how to summarize this without telling the whole thing, so why don't you tell me? title of the article, it, it kind of sums it up, and it's what obviously caught my attention, as a headline is supposed to do. Burly rugby player has a stroke after freak gym accident, wakes up gay, and becomes a hairdresser. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's your headline. <laughs> That'll stop you from clicking around and going to other places, because you can't help but click on that to see, okay, what the heck is going on here? That's funny because when I read that title, I thought it was "Stroke Turns Man Gray." I'm like, "Oh wow, a stroke gave somebody gray hair." That's that's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I think I misread that. So, Steve, what do you think? What, what happened to him? Well, you know, I, when I first saw that, I thought, okay, you know, that, that that's unusual. I've never heard of that before, but it's not crazy. I mean, you know, the, the brain's a complex thing, and. Certainly, people can have bizarre changes, you know, to their personality, etc., from focal lesions in the brain. So, I actually did quite extensive literature search uh, looking for other cases, and there actually are a number of case reports that are relevant to this case. Uh, in one report, the only other um, recent published case I could found was from 2008, and that one was actually of a man who was gay and had a stroke and became heterosexual. It was the opposite. Oh hmm. that, that's unfortunate. That's um, unfortunate. And he was, you know, he was only, only in the terms of people who actually think they could reprogram people and make them straight. Oh, if, they get, yeah. if they get their hands on that technique. Yeah, right. I see what you're saying. That's, what, that's, we, that's what I mean. Let me underscore that. We can cure be doing you now. frontal lobotomies in church basements now. Yeah, exactly. except... <laughs> or electric well, 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 I'll get back to that notion in, in a minute. Then I, f I found older reports. One, there was one gold mine. It was an article that essentially was a summary of case reports in which uh, patients had significant changes in their sexual orientation after a focal lesion like a stroke or a tumor or something like that. Most of these cases, however, were involved people who became disinhibited. And that's the first thing that I thought of too, because that's common. You know, when you, do, when you damage a part of the brain and that changes behavior, um, you obviously you're, you're taking something away, right? You're not adding something when you, when you cause a lesion. So is it, is it more that they're becoming pansexual? Well, that's, that's possible. Um, and, and in some cases, it, that appears to be the case. So, you know, there are parts of the brain that 
have inhibitory or you know decreasing effect on other parts of the brain. And if you remove the inhibition, then you disinhibit or increase the activity of those other parts of the brain. So there are definitely cases where people have become sexually disinhibited after some kind of trauma or disease or tumor or lesion or whatever. And some of the cases they described were, were essentially describing that, this, a sexual disinhibition. But then they went over a few cases where um, where patients actually their their sexual behavior changed in character, not just becoming increased. Two cases were described of um, men becoming pedophiles after having a, a lesion, a tumor, or or a stroke. Um, in in one case, a, a man had a, was found to have a tumor, and then it was removed, and he reverted back to his. His, his baseline personality, which was a normal monogamous heterosexual relationship with his wife. And then the tumor grew, grew back, and, and they, they figured that out because he started to become obsessed with, you know, with young children again. And then they removed it, and he re- once again reverted. So there was a, you know, a pretty good correlation there. To hell. Um, mm-hmm. there, was a, there is a reported case of a woman who, becoming disinhibited and, and then preferring other women as opposed to her, you know, basically losing interest in her husband and, bec- and becoming interested in other women. But again, th- that was combined with, with other like really bizarre disinhibitory behaviors like eating a lot and gaining weight and eating non-food items, spe- specifically right. toilet paper and feces were mentioned. Foam. Oh. Ah, yeah. Like yeah, in you know, those like shows one. on TLC. Oh, yeah, Taboo. My weird obsession or... Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But here, it's people eat, tr- eat dramatic change stuff. in behavior with a with a damage to the brain. Isn't it also yeah. called pica? Yeah, yeah. That's there, there, that's a yeah. Pica is the the syndrome where you eat dirt and clay or whatever. Um, so, Steve, it's what you're saying. Like sec- uh, shifting in sexual preferences or orientation is one of the symptoms of a of. of this stroke or this kind of stroke, it's just one of the things that occurs. Well, it's, there isn't one syndrome here. That's one thing that also emerged out of all of these cases is that there's no one clear anatomical syndrome where you could say, if you damage this piece of the brain, it will have this very predictable change in your sexual orientation or behavior. And that's getting back to what Bob was saying. I don't think this is going to lead to any kind of you know, church basement surgery for gayness because you know, we, don't, we don't, wouldn't know what to do. We, it, it, it's too complicated. There's too many pieces here you know, interacting with each other. There does appear to be, uh, like the temporal lobes are often involved and the hypothalamus is often involved uh, and the mesial structures are often involved. So yeah, these are the parts of the brain that we know are involved in sexual behavior. Um, So it makes sense that they they would be involved. But there isn't, again, this really predictable, like one-to-one correlation between any specific anatomical structure and, and a specific change in sexual orientation. So... You know, it does. It just reinforces the what I think we already knew that sexual orientation is a complex affair. There's a lot of moving parts. The net effect, you know, it's, it's hard to predict. And these are rare cases too. I mean, again, there's you know, we can count on one hand over the last 50 years a number of reported cases like this. This is not something that happens frequently. You know, it, what's weird about it is the the guy sustained an injury. Yeah, and then he had a you know a dramatic change in you know, a feature about him. This, in this case, it was his sexuality. And then I'm sitting here and I'm like, you know, do I feel bad for this guy? Like, you know, he was engaged. He seems perfectly happy now. He said he's, you know, some people did get hurt because of the change. Yeah. 
you know, it's not. He's really not the same person though anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's 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 interesting to think about how you should feel about well, that. Yeah, and it's Can interesting we- to think of how easy it is to change our our entire conception of what our personality yeah. is. You know, the things that you feel are most integral to you as as Jay Novella. You know, could be easily swished up in one yeah. one stroke. If you will. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, I mean, just another example of we are the meat in our head. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. His soul isn't fighting back to be to be straight. Right. Right. Yeah. The meat. The meat changed, and he changed. You're right. Absolutely. Steve, is it possible that it's purely psychological, and there's and and the the stroke, the physical effects of the stroke itself, is not possibly does not have an impact on on his. and what occurred prior and, and afterwards? That's kind of like what my, my initial take, my very initial take was that, well, he was using this as an excuse. He was always gay. He always hit it. And this was his excuse, his out, yeah. so to speak, to say, oh, boy, I'll use this to say, hey, it did something to my brain. I'm, I'm gay now. I'm sorry. Um, or n- not so much that he's sorry, but as, use it as as a as a means to to come out of the closet. And uh, But now from what Steve's saying – it doesn't look like it's the case. It looks like it's one, of, you know, it's like a one in a million type stroke that can have this type of an effect. You know, unless you knew him personally, you, it's hard to say. But just basing, taking yeah. the media reports at face value, it doesn't seem like he was an effeminate guy who was in the closet and then decided to come out after he had the stroke, or maybe he was less inhibited about coming out after the stroke. It really seems like mm. there were a suite of changes to his personality. And he he really uh, did have a change. So, but and again, the the, the other case reports that I found in the literature makes it plausible. It, but it, you know, again, it's secondhand information, so it's hard to really say. But interesting, you know. Again, some of those things that you might think, oh, this is crazy, but it actually is. You know, there's support for it in the literature. It definitely got me to stop and kind of yeah. Take a can that happen? Yeah, absolutely. Read a little more into it. All right. Well, Bob, yeah. tell us about how the Earth is about to be destroyed yet again. By another asteroid. Yeah, we had. It looks like the uh, poor old Earth had another close call. Um, this past Tuesday, November eighth, an asteroid had a close approach to the Earth. So close, in fact, that it was in the orbit of the Moon, which which are my favorite kinds of close calls. Uh, the Moon is about uh, two hundred forty nine thousand miles away. This uh, this new asteroid is about uh, two hundred two thousand miles away at its closest approach. So it got with within the orbit. And uh, just some stats on this asteroid. It was called 2005 YU55, uh, discovered about five or six years ago. It's uh, It was not big at all. It was 1,200 feet or 400 meters wa- uh, long. They said it was the size of an aircraft carrier. Lots of these websites lo- loved tr- – Love to uh, put the size in terms of uh, in ways that were more relatable, like uh, oh, it's four football fields or an aircraft carrier. Well, that helps. Um, yeah, it does. It does. But it, se- it seemed like the people were just like overdoing it a bit. Just that's uh, twelve hundred feet long, four hundred meters. Also, Bob, I just want, I want to mention that um, you mentioned that the asteroid came within the orbit of the moon. It's worth pointing out that many people grossly underestimate how far away the moon is. If you ask them, like with a representative, like to scale shapes, like oh, something representing the Earth right. and the Moon, and to, to show how far away the Moon would be from the Earth, they they hold it at something like arm's distance away. Uh, when in fact, uh, you know, if the Moon were the size of a tennis ball, let's say, and the Earth is a basketball, you'd have to be like thirty feet away in order to to represent the distance. So it, it's that's it's not that close. 
quarter yeah. million miles. But, but again, if you see it visually, it's actually much more – it puts it into much better perspective than the number. If yeah, you just go to like l- lunar distance hole. on Wikipedia, you could see a, a rel- a to-scale indication and you realize how far away the moon really is. Yeah, actually I found a website that – Put, uh, put it into perspective. Uh, the distances and the relative sizes. It was uh, they described it as if the you know if you envision the Earth as a medium-sized house, then the Moon uh, would be a large car at that scale, nine football fields away. Here's football yeah. fields again, and this the asteroid itself. This asteroid that um, that was that approached us recently was a pencil point dot, seven football fields away. Really, really crazy tiny. You can't help but think that the dinosaur killer asteroid from 65 million years ago, now that one that one was a lot bigger, but how much bigger was it? At this scale of the house car thing, it would be as big as your thumbnail. So it's still, it, you can really appreciate that this, relative to the Earth, this thing is crazy tiny, and the Earth itself really wasn't in, in, uh, in, any, in any danger. The, the one from 65 million years ago is 25 times bigger in diameter and about 15,000 times the volume. Now, but that doesn't mean that this thing, if it hit us, it wouldn't pack a, a wallop. If you, uh, if you dropped an aircraft carrier on the Earth, say you just dropped it on the Earth from a mile up, you know, it would be, that'd be a hell of a noise, right? It would pretty much knock down anything. But this thing was traveling at 29,000 miles per hour relative to the Earth's surface anyway. And, uh, so when, when, if this thing did hit us, I mean, we're talking some wicked kinetic energy. If it hit the Earth, it would have produced a four gigaton explosion, at four thousand megatons, four billion tons of TNT. So this that would have been a hell of a hit. The biggest H bomb that's ever been tested was, uh, I think, Russia had a, a hydrogen yep. bomb called Tsar that was uh, just a measly fifty megatons, right? Fifty megatons. Oh, that that sounds tiny compared to four gigatons. This thing would have actually it would have left a crater, a four mile wide crater that's seventeen hundred feet deep. Uh, can you imagine what that thing would have looked like? It would have also, uh, as a side effect, it would, there would have been a, a magnitude seven earthquake or or more. It could have been an eight. And then, if it, of course, chances are it would have hit the ocean, and that that would have produced a seventy foot high tsunami. That would have killed a lot, a lot of people. But uh, of course, you know that's that's at, you know the worst case scenario. So there's no there's no real need to really fear these types of things. According to David Rabinowitz, he's a, he's a planetary scientist at Yale. Steve, do you know him? Probably not. He no. sits at the cool table in the cafeteria <laughs> at work, right? He's a real mensch. Burn. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> he estimates that the YU55 sized asteroids come to this close to Earth only about like once in a hundred years. And then it's only like once in a hundred thousand years that we actually get hit. Um, so it's, this is exceedingly rare. But and so as close as this thing was though, a lot of people were saying, hey, can, can, you know, can we actually see this thing with our naked eye? But yeah. there was no way. Uh, there was like it's like a hundred times dimmer than the limit of human vision. So uh, it was clearly not yeah. naked eye visible unless you're a superhero. But um, if you had a six inch, six to eight inch telescope, though, you would have been able to see it. So hey, if anybody out there actually saw it with their telescopes, send us an email and yeah. tell and tell us about it. So yeah, this thing. I think they've projected this out for like a century, and this the, it's not going to be it's not going to be any problem for for quite some time. But uh, but hopefully it drives home a bit. The need to really, to really scope out all of these asteroids that could be potentially ha- really hazardous. And so we could, uh, so that we could at least have as much lead time as we can. Cause the more lead time you have, then the easier it'll be to actually change its trajectory in a, in a significant way. Uh, well, we got a quick update on the anti-vaccine movement. A couple of things in the news I think worth mentioning. Have you guys heard about the online pox parties? No, what the hell's that? Pox I've parties. already got like a oh, dozen man. lollipops ordered. <laughs> yeah. So 
back in the day, you know, like before vaccines, uh, parents would sometimes uh, deliberately expose their children to diseases like chickenpox because the thought was it's better to get it as a child than as an adult. And that's generally true. Um, although I think overall the, the risk benefit you know, analysis is pretty dubious when it comes to doing things like having chickenpox parties. But it, is, it was better to get it as a child than as an adult just because there are, there are more risks. But uh, in the age of vaccines, obviously, that's, a, that's an, an unhealthy practice you know, to deliberately infect children or expose them to a disease in the hopes that they get infected with a preventable disease that is sometimes, sometimes has complications. But, of course, if you don't believe in vaccines, then you might still think it's a good idea to have pox parties, you know, parties where you deliberately expose children to other infected kids. However, uh, it's harder to do that these days than it used to be because there are so few children with things like chickenpox because of the vaccine. So vaccine-denying parents who want to revert to the old ways and expose their kids to chickenpox, they could do this by hooking up on Facebook or online somehow and then mailing, physically mailing, infected lollipops or infected, you know, items through the mail to uh, wow. to other to other, you know, parents so that, so that they can use those items to infect their own children. That's not to say that certain things don't get shipped through mail and services and, and these sorts of things, but there are very strict tight procedures for doing yeah. such things and no way this, the average person is going to be able to adhere to to all those rules. Yeah. No, this is illegal. This yeah. is illegal. Mike the yeah. Mad Biologist, uh, an awesome blogger I follow, made a really good point about the only difference between this and biological terrorism, bioterrorism, is intent. Yep. And they're putting so many people's health at risk, postal workers, you know, who could be coming into contact with this stuff. It's really alarming. It's reckless. It's absolutely reckless behavior to deliberately send infecting viruses through the mail. Yeah, I mean, you, you, there could be a lot of obviously uh, innocent people exposed by this. And you also can't be sure of all the organisms that you're sending through. You know, you may assume it's just chickenpox, right. but that may not be correct. And, you know, there are, yeah, there are very strict regulations for sending biological material through the mail, and they're just completely ignoring that and just throwing lollipops in envelopes and licking them and sending them on their way. <laughs> But it just shows you how irresponsible and reckless they are and and also inconsiderate, how selfish. I mean, you know, there there is something extremely selfish about the whole anti-vaccine whole idea that, you know, well, screw herd immunity and the population. I'm going to do what I want to do, you yeah. know, because I, th- cause I think this is best for my kid. It's not even the best thing for their kids, but they that, think that it is. Yeah, the mommy instinct. Uh, yeah, every, everything else be damned, yeah. It's so sad that you have to say something like probably not advantageous to deliberately infect a child. Yeah. It's sad right. that that sentence needs to be said. You could just vaccinate them. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> that would be the best thing to do. Yeah. And I mean, the, I think this is the ultimate worship of natural. You know, yes. we, we, we joke about how, you know, people like Jenny McCarthy complain about toxins in vaccines and she gets botulism injected into her face. I, it's it's mind-boggling that they they believe that because these things are found in nature, because this is a disease that is found in nature, it must therefore be somehow better for us than whatever scientists have cooked up in their lab. It's really incredible. It is the naturalistic fallacy, yeah. 
Uh, hey, guys, do you know what they serve at chicken pox parties? I can't wait to hear. Uh. Poxicles. <laughs> Good, Jay. No. Poxicles. Chicken pox pie. Chicken pox uh, pie. I like poxicles nice. better, actually. Yeah, Jay's was better. So. <laughs> <laughs> stole, you stole your thunder, Evan. Uh, it's all right. I'll get him later. <laughs> okay. I was damn sure you were going to say that, some, Evan. I got some thunder to steal myself. Go ahead. He's going to lick going. him later. All right, very quickly, the other bit of news is that the National Vaccine Information Center, the NVIC, which is an anti-vaccine organization in the United States, managed to uh, get a public service announcement onto some domestic flights on Delta Airlines uh, talking about the flu. And what they did was very deceptive. They talk about ways of preventing the flu and from spreading the flu, mainly – uh, like washing your hands and all the, the common sense stuff, and then really downplaying the role of the vaccine. But the point of all this was to refer viewers to the NVIC website, which, of course, is a com- is loaded with anti-vaccine misinformation and propaganda. They so- even have screenshots of their website that include, in, in the ad that they bought, yeah. uh, the screenshots show things like, um, mercury in vaccines and aluminum in vaccines and Gardasil, the damage continues. Yeah, right. <laughs> so needless to say, uh, the medical and the, uh, pediatric you know, communities were not happy about this. A lot of people sent letters and emails to Delta to complain about it. Uh, we actually did this from you know, the, the Institute of Science and Medicine did it officially as well as Stephen Barrett and a number of other people. Uh, I've seen about six letters back to different people, and it's basically the same form letter that everybody's getting. And essentially what Delta said was, you know, all the usual for, we're very interested in customer feedback, blah, 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 blah. But here's their fixes that they say, uh, here's the concluding paragraph, therefore we have changed our internal review, review process and procedures to help ensure that submitted content is vetted differently going forward. We recognize that while the views represented in Lifestyle 365 do not necessarily match those of Delta, we have a responsibility to our customer to ensure all programming is relevant, accurate, and does not lend itself to interpretation. So they're not going to pull it, and they're not going to end the campaign early. It's going to be over in end of November anyway. But they're basically saying, all right, we won't screw up again going forward. But we'll see. You know, we'll definitely keep a, keep a close eye on, on them. There was an interesting response because um, Elise over at Skeptic blogged about this and also started a petition on change.org that you can still go and sign if you'd like. We're up to 2,224 signatures. We're looking for 5,000. She's been in talks with people and they haven't dropped the issue. Um, If we can get the ad pulled even a week early, it would save, you know, a lot of people from being exposed to this complete lunacy and misinformation campaign. Um, these, this is the same organization that had an ad in Times Square, which we tried to stop and could not. Um, but if you, if you want a bit of a, a bit of hope, there was, uh, this is very similar to what happened last year in theaters when anti-vaccination groups tried to run ads before uh, movies yeah. in AMC theaters and we did a petition that ended up making AMC pretty quickly turn around and pull the ads. So we're pretty sure if we can get enough signatures on that petition, we can force Delta to take this seriously and actually pull the ad. Um, in-flight media is the, the 
group that supplies Delta's ads. They had the video up on their Facebook page. Um, they they took it down. Um, actually, I think they had the video on their website and they took it down and they disabled commenting on their Facebook page because of the outcry. So they're definitely seeing that people are upset about this. Um, I think if we can keep it up, there's a very real chance that we could get this decision reversed and actually get them to pull the ad. Yeah, that that would be good. We definitely have to keep the pressure on, and uh, you know we're going to be playing whack-a-mole a bit with this kind of thing. I mean, this is obviously the, the NVIC is doing this now. They're trying to you know use their resources to put you know, misinformation advertising in various venues, and we just have to jump on it whenever it comes to our attention. Uh, because they are spreading medical misinformation that is harming the public. So Yeah. Uh, in a place where disease is very easy to transmit in an enclosed yes. space with recirculating air uh, with travelers from all over the world on it. Um, and a captive audience. Yeah. Place. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, also, if you're interested in voting with your dollars, um, U.S. Airways and American Airlines – throughout the month of November, are running ads from Every Child by Two, which is a campaign for uh, actual vaccine education. Mm -hmm. Um, Their mission is to protect children from vaccine-preventable diseases. So if you fly those airlines, maybe drop them a note thanking them for running something that is responsible. That's refreshing to hear a company today actually doing the right thing and making a good decision. Yeah, and I I had heard that Delta was also going to be running Every Child by Two ads um, later, but I haven't seen confirmation of that. And the last, the, the I, I only heard of it in the context of uh, there's a there's a fear that if Delta does drop the anti-vax ads, they may drop the pro-vax ads too, just to avoid a headache. So we certainly don't want that happening. So it would be good to reward companies that are running responsible, science-based ads. Good skeptical activism. Good to see. Mm-hmm. It's good work, boys. That's good work, boys. And gals. <laughs> All right, Rebecca, a couple of uh, UFO news items that you're going to update us on. Yes, I have a very, uh, very exciting update to my ongoing segment, Things in the Sky, which are mistaken for other possibly paranormal things. Um, everyone's favorite segment, I think. Um, so far, it's, it's been a real audience favorite. I think. <laughs> it's a real cloud uh, uh, uh This week's example comes to us from businessinsider.com, where they report that a British man uh, called the police after mistaking the moon for a UFO. Mm-hmm. There is uh, the, the thing that sets this apart from your average person mistakes the moon for a UFO thing <laughs> is that there is actual tape. There's audio of the 999 call the man made, and it's very entertaining. He, uh, it's two calls. The first one is him calling to report this strange thing in the sky that he's worried about, and the second one is him <laughs> calling is to sick. apologize because he took another Oop. look and it's the moon. Never mind. <laughs> so, We've actually her. talked about this in the past. Like, How could people possibly mistake Several the moon times. for anything yeah. other than the moon? I think yeah. we talked about this like last week. <laughs> yeah, it happens all the time. A couple of weeks yep. ago, the Chinese, the lanterns and the sightings over Ireland. And mm-hmm. 
So, the rescue flares, right? Yeah. It's, the rescue flares. Yep. People think that there are rescue flares going up and they're notifying the authorities. But the, mo- but the, the moon, moon is very common. Yeah. Yeah. So that concludes this week's uh, things that were seen in the sky that were mistaken for other possibly paranormal things. I might be changing the name of the segment every time. I'm not sure. <laughs> but been, make it the only longer. thing that should remain is the length of the title. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think, yes. I think it could be longer. I'm going to... Nice and meandering. Next week's like segment, crazy-ass things that people saw in the sky. They weren't sure what they were. They got a little confused. Yeah. They had a few drinks. They called the cops. And they, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and I'm not even. I don't even have to like read the story because it's all going to be in the in the title. Yeah, you nice. read the title and you're done. <laughs> yeah. right. Right. Um, but but there is there's more UFO news. Yes, Steve. Uh, it's not just that. Um, <laughs> there's also the very exciting news uh, that came from the U.S. government. The U.S. government has <sighs> issued an official statement on UFOs and UFO conspiracy theories. You see. Um, there there was a petition. There's a website called We the People. Uh, you can go there and you can start a petition if you'd like. And if you get a certain amount, What? Yep, Never Star mind. Trek. Thank you. Star Trek jokes. So, oh, I'm sorry. Did I stumble into a dork reference? That yes, I you did. You missed the dork reference, but go on. I'll just, okay, just, I'll just wipe your feet then. and continue. Um, <laughs> actually, hold on. I, I took a screenshot of something funny that I wanted to read, and now I can't find it, and it's bothering me. 42 minutes. Go on. Oh, God. Don't pressure me, Steve. (laughs) No pressure. It's only going to make things worse. (laughs) Um, So there's a website called We the People. You can go there. You can make a petition. If you get a certain number of signatures, you uh, have a chance to have your petition seen by the president. Um, mm-hmm. If you get enough signatures, you deserve a response from the actual government. I, now, hang on. I don't know if the president actually reads that. I mean, his hand. The his president. People. His people. Personally. His people. I'm pretty sure he personally <laughs> read this ridiculous <laughs> petition. You're right. He logged on himself. I mean, that's that's what I'm hoping anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I mean, one can hope. One can hope. Mm-hmm. So but, the petition uh, demanded that the government finally answer the general public who is demanding to know whether or not there are really men in black, whether or not Area 51 exists, basically asking them to reveal all of the secret UFO data they've had stored for all these years. And have been denying and denying. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still a crisis in the U.S. with, you know, distribution of wealth and uh, lack of jobs. But I, for one, am happy that someone took time out of his day to answer this very important petition. Uh, And the answer was, let me see, I'm just going to read this directly so I can get this straight. No, you dumbasses. No. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like the president. You may be paraphrasing. Maybe maybe he did read it. uh, Yeah, maybe, I don't know. I might have gotten that wrong, but that's that's basically what they said. No, there's there's, there's no such thing as... I I wanted to see what the UFO believing community thought of this and I found a blog where it was being discussed there were quite a number of comments um and they were they were not happy and I I took a screenshot of my favorite two comments right in a row uh the first one by Jennifer K I guess we can finally stop asking ourselves what side of the fence the present 
American administration sits on. And they think mm-hmm. we all just fell off the turnip truck. Reply to mm-hmm. by Cinzia P. FYI, the Pleiadian High Council on the Disclosure Petition. Dearest souls, we come to you this day in love and in our refined versions of the emotion you call disappointment. And then there are several paragraphs written by the Pleiadian High Council, which um, they have their own blog, and it's totally serious. I love it. I really love it when people try to pretend that they're aliens, and they talk like in a way that's just slightly... It's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's like there's, not, like there's no like Dan Aykroyd, the conehead. There's no contractions. Um, we wish to we we wish not to sound unloving through our stern tone, but the time truly hath come for you all to know about us and about the actions that have been taking place in your world for a millennia. It's about it as compelling like as a 1950s movie showing an in an American Indian going how. You know, yeah, that's about yeah. how accurate. And my response to the Pleiadian High Council would be, if you want us to believe in you, why don't you come here? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and but he is here, according to this this blog. Um, it's it's very a very funny blog. But I just picture Jennifer Kay. She like she types out her comment. You know, they think we all just fell off the turnip truck. You know, <laughs> enter, and then she sees the next response, and she goes, "Oh, for." work with me work with me <laughs> we're making us all look bad <laughs> right. I, I would also know who let the crazies out i would note that in response to this also i don't know if it was response to this specific one but we could pretend that it was the the white house increased the threshold for having to respond to a petition from five thousand to twenty five thousand like enough of that that was probably Sounds just good a quiz. to me. This one, this one got seventeen thousand signatures, so they raised the threshold to above that to right, twenty five thousand. I think every administration has had to go through this since the nineteen fifties. I can't remember an administration that didn't have to deal with a UFO question one yeah. one point or yeah. another. Yeah, but rarely were they forced to answer it in such a fun democratic way. <laughs> right, Steve. Are you, are you sure you read all the zeros? I thought it, they raised it to twenty five million. <laughs> No. 25,000 within like 30 days. It's a short. I think the official number is UFO petition numbers plus one. Plus one, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, a lot of people pointed out too when I blogged about this that, you know, what was the point of this? Really, did anyone who is, wants the answer to this question really think that the government's going to go, oh, okay, you got us? You're, oh, here, here's yeah. all the information. Of course they were going to deny it, and then the, yeah, but the conspiracy Steve, maybe they to be unmoved. Enough time has gone by, you know? No, it's a stunt. It's just, one, just to get it in the news cycle. It's just, it, it was never serious. Again, I, I've heard this has happened before. Maybe not in the, exactly. It doesn't unfold this particular this way. This has happened before, and it will happen again. It will. Yeah. They, you know, where it's a presidents have outright been asked in news conferences. It's Battlestar Galactica all over it. again. All right. <laughs> Deja vu. Move on. Um, One last news item. Jay, tell us about uh, the update on the Orion space program. Earlier this year, we found out that the Orion crew exploration vehicle and the Constellation program were canceled. And the, the good news is that the research that they put into that original Orion, which could have just fallen on the... The drawing board floor, uh, they carried it forward for the development of the Orion Multipurpose Crew Vehicle, Orion MPCV. So that's like the new branded name. Uh, 
guess it's very similar to the original, but they're they're doing more research and and making it cooler. So right now, Lockheed Martin Space System Space Systems is building the Orion MPCV. NASA's new manned vehicle, whose first planned mi- mission is taking place sometime in 2014. I think I read it was the spring in 2014. The first mission is going to be unmanned and just orbit a couple of times and re-enter. And they're doing that because they want to collect data on the re-entry to see how it performs and to, to help them um, develop more technology so they can have it actually re-enter at higher speeds and, and whatnot. Yeah. It's probably a good idea to test it without putting a person in there first. Yeah. Right. That, yeah, that'd be my choice. Now, you know, remember we talked about the SLS. That's the uh, NASA Space Launch System rocket. This was the one that had some controversy about the technology yeah. that they're using for it. Is it good or whatever? But this is the, the new rocket that NASA is developing, and that's that will not be ready for the 2014 test launch, although that rocket is supposed to be the one that's going to be used and reused for the Orion. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to probably use a Delta IV heavy rocket for for that planned launch uh, in 2014. So Orion is actually being designed to take astronauts way past the space station to places like the moon, and uh, there's talk about Mars missions and also asteroid missions. No missions are planned today, of course, but you know all these ideas are being talked about. I mean, this, this is a pretty exciting spaceship that we're building because of what they're planning on doing with it. It will just be nice to have a ship that can get astronauts up to and from the space station. Right. Yeah, it's also a good ship for them to have because it could be like an emergency reentry vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this, I, I'm I'm assuming. Now, remember we talked about how people, a couple of people, wrote in and say, "Why don't we use the space shuttle and just leave it docked up there?" Yeah. Um, and if they need to, re, you know, do emergency reentry, use that. And we found out that you can't just leave a spaceship docked. That there's a massive amount of wear and tear just having it float in outer space because if it's I'm pressurized sure. and whatnot. But this this actually could be a vehicle that they would leave parked at the space station or you know points in outer space so they they could use as an emergency reentry, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that would be cool. Um, so this was off the NASA site, the spacecraft to serve as the primary crew vehicle for missions beyond LEO, which is low Earth orbit. And they said, capable of conducting regular in-space operations, rendezvous, docking, extravehicular activity, in conjunction with payloads delivered by the Space Launch System, the SLS for missions beyond LEO. And the capability to be a backup system for International Space Station cargo and crew delivery. Awesome. Does that answer all your questions, Steve? Yes. <laughs> but now we've got to wait two years for the yeah. test launch. That's what you're saying. 2014. Yeah, I mean, look, they can't roll this stuff out quick enough to satiate any of us. I know, I know. That's good. Good. I'm glad that they're moving forward with something. Yep. Private markets moving forward as well. They need to go, you know, there there should be many vectors working on these these problems. So it's all good. So, Evan, not only do we have to do Who's That Noisy, but you have to announce the winner from two weeks ago because we skipped over that last time. From two weeks ago. Yep, yep. So I've got some housekeeping to do. Let's get right to it. First of all, I'm going to play for you the Who's That Noisy. It was from episode 328. <laughs> what the hell? Terrible. I think that was uh, It's from a Chibo Motto album I think. It's from an Indian porn movie <laughs> That's what I thought That's the best guess yet No, that's our dear friend Deepak Chopra 
from his <laughs> album. He has albums, this guy, titled A Gift of Love. Deepak and Friends present music inspired by the love poems of Rumi. R-U-M-I. Evan, this guy's a respectable doctor. Respect. <laughs> I mean, come on. He's a serious what's he, what's he academic. A Steve, do you have like a hidden, like so- somewhat sexy uh, like rap album or something <laughs> we need album. to know about? <laughs> oh, God. You see the album covers, Jay? <laughs> but who guessed it? Trinock from the message boards. Okay. We've heard of him before, right? Trinock, yeah. How many times yeah. he's gotten Who's That Noisy correct? I don't know. Twice, at least. At least twice. Yeah. At least twice. Now, uh, Deepak is venturing out further into the field of music, including a forthcoming rap album under his rap persona name, Deepak Shakur, and an album of opera, which has a working title of Deepak Oprah. Jokes. And he's working on another <laughs> album filled with tantric theme songs to be listened to only at night, titled Nocturnal Emissions. So uh, there you have it. The yeah, latest oh and greatest God. offerings from Deepak Chopra. And I hear they make great Hanukkah presents. Mm. <laughs> okay. Now I know what to get you. And to, now, now get us up to last week. Here we go. Episode 329. Last week's Who's That Noisy? Kind of a creaking, groaning. That's Deepak Chopra on the toilet after going out to Taco Bell. <laughs> after listening to his albums, yes. No, 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 no. That is a Borg ship entering the atmosphere. That's right. Awesome, Steve. I think it's a like a slowed down lion's roar, or something like that. It's from an, an animal. You're right about the animal, but not a lion's roar. Wrong phylum. Right. It is an animal called the the mantis shrimp, which is mantis neither shrimp. shrimp. Neither shrimp nor manted. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> right. It is a marine crustacean, member of the order uh, Stromatophoda. No, Stromatopoda, P O D A. Stromatopoda. 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 Foot mouth. I love that. Neither shrimp nor manted. The mantis shrimp. <laughs> Those rumbling, <laughs> rumbling sounds are made by them. Um, these are uh, these predatory crustaceans, and they are predatory. Are about 25, 20 to 25 centimeters long. Uh, their sounds have been studied in laboratories where the researchers have found that uh, the males make these low frequency rumbling noises. The females remain silent. And uh, the noise is actually created uh, by vibrating its muscles using sensory hairs on its body to hear rumbles made by others. So there you go. Very nice. Did, did anybody guess it? We had no. Ooh. Winners for that particular Wow, clean sweep. Nope, that was a sweep on that one. That doesn't but, happen uh, often. But that was challenging, you know. Yeah, I mean, who would think a shrimp could bust out with that kind of craziness, you know? Right, with that kind of berry white groaning. All right. I mean, who knew? Well, good job then, Evan. So what do you got for this week? Okay, so for this week, we've got something that is short and sweet, but I think somebody should get it. Here we go. This week's Who's That Noisy? Uh, flying saucers and they've had other things, you know. That's it. That's all you get. That is short. But I predict somebody is going to get this. I predict several people are going to get it. So give us your best guess, info at theskepticsguide.org, or write us on on the forums, on our message board, at theskepticsguide.org website. And, of course, good luck All right. To Thank you, Evan. We're going we're gonna to do Thank one you. email... 
this week. This one comes from Bruce in Toronto, and he writes, This is a weird one. Half of a randomized group gets intercessionary prayer. He actually means intercessory prayer. Four years after the illness that landed them in the hospital and appears to exhibit better recovery than those who didn't receive the intercessory prayer. I'm just guessing here. Is the effect large enough to be considered statistically significant? Does evidence-based medicine hold itself to some standards that other branches of the sciences do, typically five sigma confidence? Okay, I doubt that is practical or financially viable. How can we distinguish cause and effect if causality is denied by the nature of the study? And he provides the link to the study. This is one of the most absurd studies I've ever read in my life. I sent this to you guys. You guys all had a chance to read it? I did read oh it. Oh, my God. Was, I, yeah, I read <laughs> like the abstract, you know. I couldn't finish it. Talk about abstract. <laughs> no, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, so the, the, what the researchers did is they took – uh, 3,393 patients that had a bloodstream infection in a specific hospital over a six-year period. They then randomly divided them into two groups. They then flipped a coin to decide which group would be the treatment group and which would be the control group. Then they had somebody pray for the treatment group. This is now years after the, the, they had the infection. And then they looked through the, the two groups to see uh, the, the outcomes they measured was overall mortality, the um, duration of fever in the hospital stay, the duration of the hospital stay. And they found that all of those things were better in the group that was prayed for. Years now, later? Yeah. yeah, the key fact here is that it was yeah. years later, not, not while they were sick. That confused me. Yeah. Well, here, here you go. I mean, you've got to read the actual study. But let me, let me point out first that the, the difference in mortality was not statistically significant, which means there was no difference, right? By which you mean there was a difference, It was right? not statistically significant, so it's within noise. I'm joking. I'm the, saying from the standpoint of the... Yeah, the difference <laughs> in the, in the, the uh, fever was, was significant to 0.01 and the, in the hospital state to 0.04. Yeah, these are barely statistically significant. The differences themselves were very tiny... So this is noise. This is, by definition, the, the, you know, the kind of noise that you expect to see in studies like this, right? I mean, there's no, there's no clear signal here, but the way... That's not what they said in their Yeah, conclusion. the way the author writes it up is just sheer gold. So uh, you, you asked about the time factor. In the introduction, the author writes, the purpose of the present study was to extend these observations to patients with another severe disorder, bloodstream infection, as we cannot assume a priori that time is linear and as we perceive it, or that God is limited by a linear time as we are, the intervention was carried out four to ten years after the patient's infection and hospitalization. Because time, time is not is linear, Evan. <laughs> I'm so stupid. Come on. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a doctor. I don't understand right. these complex medical topics. Yes. <laughs> Time is not linear. They also report that other studies of, inter- of intercessory prayer sh- were 57% of them were positive, which, again, that's <laughs> exactly what we would expect from the null hypothesis with a slight publication bias, right? Uh, <laughs> so, again, negative, in other words, doesn't work. Are you going to read the conclusion? Yeah, I mean, it just, it just goes on. I mean, the whole paper is just so r- ridiculous. But the conclusion was remote retroactive retroactive intercessory prayer can improve outcomes in patients with a bloodstream infection. This intervention is cost-effective, probably has no adverse effects, 
and should be considered for clinical practice. Uh, Further studies may, may determine the most effective form of this intervention and its, effect, and its effect in other severe conditions and may clarify its mechanism. Oh, man, their faces are going to be so red when it turns out the most effective form is praying to Zeus. Yeah. So red. <laughs> should be considered for use in clinical practice. Oh, man. But, but here's read this one, too. Remote retroactive intercessory prayer was associated with a shorter stay in hospital and a shorter duration of fever in patients with a bloodstream infection. Mortality was lower in the intervention group, but the difference between the groups was not significant. A larger study might have shown a significant reduction in mortality. Unlikely. Yeah, yeah. wasn't that 0.02 Beautiful. or something, Steve? Yeah, it, it might have shown that prayer makes people poop rainbows. I mean, yeah. it's <laughs> it really wasn't even a full percentage it actually point lar- That's the opposite of the, of the truth because the larger the study, the more the results would reflect randomness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not the less. He's hoping that the, that the deviation from randomness would be greater with larger numbers. That's the opposite of what opposite. would happen. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the plausibility here is zero. This, so this just shows that the, these, these are the kind of results that you'll get. The other thing is, you might think, right, so is it possible that there were any shenanigans that could have led to, you know, two of the three outcomes being significant? And the, what we don't know is, were these the only three things the authors looked at? That's the one thing that you really can never know from reading a paper. Let's say they looked at six or seven different outcomes, and they just picked, you know, two. I mean, the mortality you kind of have to include, and that was the one that was not statistically significant. But length of fever, you know, they okay, they they could or could not have chosen that. They could have chosen other outcomes, right? In terms of like you know, how how long it took for their cultures to become negative or whatever. But they may have looked at other outcomes and then only chose the ones that were positive, and then not done a statistical analysis adjusting for multiple comparisons. Um, so that's a way of making, of cherry-picking the data and making it look positive when it's negative. Given the nonsense this guy is writing in this article, we certainly can't trust you know, that his methods were rigorous and he didn't pull anything like that. But even if this was straight up, even if this was you know, exactly as they said with, with no cherry-picking, the, these, are, these are the random scatter of results we expect uh, from the null hypothesis, from from nothing, but it just shows you how the methods used, the the p value statistical analysis, tends to overcall results, tends to generate a lot of false positives, a lot of raw material for publication bias, etc. So, yeah, but the uh, the delusionary content in the article is just fabulous. But the thing that's amazing is this was published in the BMJ. A yes. major British you know, medical journal. journal 2001. Journal. How did the reviewers let this nonsense get through? I don't understand. How they let this guy get away with making statements like, a larger study may have shown statistical significance. That's BS. <laughs> That's total BS. Come on. Who the hell reviewed Steve, this? Never have heard. you written your angry letter yet to the BMJ? <laughs> That's 10 years old, though. I mean... Yeah, I know. This study was published in 2001. It was just uh, sent to us today, but... The, uh, the, but it also shows you that the, the, the over this is, this is what we're seeing with the intercessory, intercessory prayer literature is the, the, the random scatter around no effect that you would expect and the random positive things that are cropping out by random chance are not consistent from study to study. You know, whereas if you were seeing a real effect, you would expect to see that the, the same 
you know, effects would be cropping up over and over again. There would be some consistency to the results. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week (laughs) and a slight alteration. The theme is U.S. energy use, and there there are four items instead of three. That is a terrible theme. It's a great theme. Because it, it allowed me to pull four items out of one news item. I think it's a great theme. Which I'll tell you about in a moment. It's Stop great. sucking up, Evan. If you read this one item, yeah, it's I great. I just don't want to go first. <laughs> <laughs> Clever. All right, here we go. Item number one. The top four sources of electricity generation in the U.S. are coal, natural gas, hydroelectric, and nuclear in that order, followed distantly by wind, geothermal, and solar. Item number two, total energy use in the U.S. is down from its peak of 101.5 quads, that's quadrillion BTUs, or British thermal units, in 2007. So down from its peak of 101.5 quads in 2007 to 98.0 quads in 2010. Likewise, carbon dioxide emissions have decreased from 6,022 million metric tons to 5,632 over the same period. Number, item number three, fossil fuels represent 83% of total energy production in the U.S., while renewable sources represent 3.8%. And item number four, 91% of solar power in the U.S. is self-generated residential. Rebecca, go first. So top four sources, coal, natural gas, hydroelectric, nuclear followed distantly by wind, geothermal, and solar. I would have thought nuclear was ahead of hydroelectric, but that's totally just a guess. I have no idea. Geothermal seems like it's been gaining a lot of ground, but okay, I don't know. This second one is just, that is too much happening there. Total, I just have to read it. Again, in in full. Total energy use in the U.S. is down from its peak of 101.5 quads in 2007 to 98 quads in 2010. And carbon dioxide emissions have decreased from 6.022 million metric tons. 6,022. But then it says million. 6,022 million? Yes. 1,000 million? Yep. Okay. I guess you could say... Is that a billion? Yeah. yeah, (laughs) That's what we say here in the U.S. (laughs) Okay, so I'm believing that that one is true because I think Steve copied and pasted it from (laughs) something weird. Because otherwise, I think Steve would have said six billion. (laughs) That's my only reason for thinking that that's true. Fossil fuels represent 83% of total energy production in the U.S. Uh, Renewable sources represent 3.8. That jibes with what I would have guessed. There's nothing surprising there for me, but maybe that means that that's the fake one because that's so maybe, maybe renewable resources are much higher or much lower. 3.8%. And 91% of solar power in the U S is self-generated residential. That's, that's concerning because I know that a lot of businesses that want to be 
seen as green or LEED certified, uh, and fairly easy way to do that is to install uh, solar panels on your roof. I would have thought that there would be a higher percentage of it that was business. However, that said, um, I know that rich people really like solar panels as well. I've seen them, I think, in Sky Mall. I'm going to go with the fossil fuels representing 83% of total energy production because it seems really, that seems normal to me. And I think that maybe it's some ridiculous figure that you are trying to fool us with. Okay. Jay? The first one about the, the top four sources of electricity generation, um, that sounds accurate. I mean, I know that coal and natural gas are, are far in the lead. So that part of that is correct. Hydroelectric and nuclear, I mean, yeah, I guess those would definitely be the next two. Uh, just don't know where where solar is at right now. It doesn't seem like it's being used that much. But I'm going to think that one is true. The second one about the total energy use in, U- in the U.S. is down from its peak. Uh, I can't possibly imagine how that could be true because population is consistently increasing. I mean, there's just more electronic devices and everything. More, more people have more devices now than ever. I'm going to, I, that one is definitely on the maybe list. Fossil fuels represent 83% of total energy production in the U.S., that one seems correct. And 91% of the solar power in the U.S. is self-generated. Okay, I'm going to say that the second one about the U.S. using less energy is the fake. Okay, Bob? Most A lot of what Rebecca said um, agrees with, with what I think. You're so smart, Rebecca. Yeah. Um, you didn't notice I was a backhanded compliment to myself, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the first one, the um, top four sources, looks looks good, but... But yeah, I think uh, hydroelectric and nuclear. I thought they nuclear. I thought they would be swapped. But but um, I but I still though. I think that's that's pretty right. And the second one actually, the uh, with the peak with the 101 quads in 90s in 2007. Yeah, that that agrees with uh, some things that um, that just makes sense with to me that uh, that we peaked in 2007 and it, and it went down. Um, so I don't have a problem with that one either. The second half of that one, I'm not sure about, but, um, if the first half is true, then I'm going to go with it. So it's the third and fourth one with me, the, um, the, the, uh, ratio of fossil fuels with, uh, renewable resources and the, the solar, the, the solar one, my, my first, my, my knee jerk reaction to that is that, um, that no way it's all businesses that, um, mostly businesses would have the, would, I would think would have the solar, but I think, Solar is getting so popular, and so many people, so many residential, uh, you know, houses have them that um, that they're just, you know, swamping any any panels that that all these companies have. That that leaves three though with the um, the ratio of uh, fossil fuels to renewable. Yeah, there's such a wide range of numbers that wouldn't surprise me on that. I really don't know, but I think there's such a variability in what's reasonable there that I'm gonna I'm gonna say that that one is is fiction. Okay, Evan. I gotta agree with Bob and Rebecca. The third one, um, fossil fuels representing eighty-three percent total energy production. Uh, I think that number's too high. I think that's going to wind up being lower than that is. That seems like a, you know, a sh- almost a shockingly high number in a sense. 
Um, so I think that number is too high. Therefore, I think that one's fiction. Okay. So uh, if I got this if correct, Bob, Rebecca, and Evan all think that three, that 83% of our total energy coming from fossil fuels is fiction. And Jay, you think that the number two, the notion that energy use and carbon dioxide emissions is from 2007 to 2010 is the fiction. So you all agree on number one and number four. Uh, let's start with number four, 91% of solar power in the U.S. is self-generated residential. You guys all think that one is correct, and that one is science. Hooray. That's, that is correct. Uh, so total solar energy uh, was 0.11 quads in, in 2010, uh, not really going up too much over the last few years. 0.1 of that was self-generated residential, only 0.01 was everything else. So yeah, about 90, 90 whatever, 1% is uh, self-generated residential. Um, so yeah, it's mostly people with solar panels. Let's go to number one. The top four sources of electricity generation in the U.S. are coal, natural gas, hydroelectric, and nuclear in that order, followed distantly by wind, geothermal, and solar. You guys all think that is science. And that one is the fiction. No yeah. shit. Wow. Wow. Just a fiction. Uh, the true order, number one, is indeed coal, 48%. So this is not energy use. This is electricity generation, right? So these are power plants. 48% yes. coal. And the number two spot is nuclear at 21%. So your gut instinct was oh, right, Rebecca. Shit. Totally your right. Gut is- God damn it. Number three... Nat- natural gas at 19%, just behind nuclear, and it will overtake it soon. It's been yeah. on the increase. Hydroelectric is a distant fourth at 6.3%. And then wind, 2.3%, has been increasing. Geothermal, 0.38%. It actually decreased a little bit this last year. And solar, yeah. 0.025%. So, yeah. Yep. Less than geothermal. Yeah, it's really... <laughs> Really, it's <laughs> yeah, significant. Wind, wind is solar. really the renewable. Well, hydroelectric is considered renewable as well. So you can't store the solar yeah. stuff. We can get it. Oh, they got some good ideas. I know. Get it. We're working on it. Working on it. But the interesting thing is, what, what about nuclear? I mean, are we going to have to really increase our? If we want to displace coal, what are we going to displace coal with? Natural gas is is a good option. It's still fossil fuel. It's still not renewable, but. It's less greenhouse gas emitting than coal, less polluting than coal. And the U.S.'s ability to produce natural gas is actually increasing because of, you guys know? Uh, a deeper, food. A de- deeper technology. Because of fracking. You guys familiar with fracking? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Causing earth Watch your language. Yeah, so this Black is we're going to have to talk about this some other time because it's now like a, a controversial topic and I haven't completely wrap my head around it enough to know which side to come down on. But here's the controversy. Um, Estimates are that we have 100 years worth of natural gas trapped in shale that we can get at through fracking, which is like injecting water into the shale and extracting the natural gas in that way. So it's good from that point of view. The downside is what what people are questioning is its safety. Is it it, um, essentially the big concern is, is it contaminating the well water, the drinking water? And I hear different things about that, different claims. So uh, we'll probably have to cover that at some point in the future, that, the controversy over fracking. But, but regardless of that controversy, it is producing a lot of natural gas 
cheaply and it's cost effective and and uh, power companies are building a lot of natural gas power plants. In fact, do you guys remember a few months ago? I think it was over the summer that explosion in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It shook our windows. Yeah, the. Uh, that, the, yeah, the clean, that was a that was a power clean. plant being built in a natural gas power plant being built in the U.S. in Connecticut, right yep. in our name that it's blew up. Yeah. The real clean facility, a billion dollar plant, was just uh, yeah. the, they were getting ready to fire it up and get it online. It was like a month yeah. away. And they they screwed and, up. They did uh, some procedure wrong and they yeah. released too much gas and it caught fire. So let's go on. Number, that means that number two, total energy use in the U.S. is down from its peak of 101.5 quads in 2007 to 98.0 quads in 2010. Likewise, carbon dioxide emissions have decreased from 6,022 million metric tons in five, in to 5,632 over the same period is science. Uh, it actually uh, had decreased to um, from 2007 to 2009. It increased a little bit in 2008, in 2010 rather. Uh, but still much lower, you know, by those figures from 2007 peak, and it, it's it's just from people using less energy because people are trying to conserve. That's what it's from. Interesting. So we actually are decreasing our CO2 emission. Yay! Hooray for yeah. us! All right, but uh, still now, have a long way to everybody go. Everybody, turn now, off chi- your iPad. <laughs> now China's going to get on board. And- <laughs> yeah, China's like no way. They're just <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're, they're they're not yeah, interested right. in no. Uh, and then number three, fossil fuel rep- fossil fuels represent 83% of total energy production. Again, I want to distinguish energy production from electricity generation. In the U.S., while renewable sources represent 3.8%, that is science, because energy wow. you know, production and use also rec- includes things like gas in cars, which has nothing to do with electricity production at power plants. The, the flow sheet's very interesting. This is the, uh, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. It comes out with their, every year their their flow chart of estimated U.S. energy use, and it has like all the different sources, how the, that energy flows through electricity generation, residential, commercial, industrial, transportation, you know, and where it all ends up. So it's very interesting to to look at that. Uh, if you just look at the ultimate the the ultimate source of energy. It's it's a lot of it is petroleum, coal, and natural gas. Total, those three things add up to to eighty three percent. If you add up solar, hydroelectric, wind, geothermal, and just those four, you get the three point eight percent. The nuclear is uh, neither fossil fuel nor renewable. It's not greenhouse gas producing, but it's it's finite because you have to. You know, burn fuel, nuclear fuel. Um, so it's not technically a renewable source. And then the biomass is complicated. I didn't include biomass because that's right now 4.29 uh, quads. So it's not insignificant. But no. you know, you you have to. I don't. I wonder if they counted the fossil fuels that go into growing the biomass. You know, I don't right. think so. From looking at the chart, it's interesting. But if you don't, if you just considered it, you know, as a renewable source, it, it's not. It's kind of renewable, but it is using. You know, if you're growing corn and fertilizing the fields with gasoline, you know it's not technically renewable. So that one's tricky at the present. This is a good one, Steve. Uh, yeah, I was thought it I was. Like I, I was really fascinated by the, all the implications of the chart, and I thought it'd be fun to yeah pull pull four items out of that. See what you guys think about it. You have a weird definition of the word fun. <laughs> I had fun. Yeah, good for you. 
Good chat. Right. Well, oh, thank you guys. It was, uh, but I was also reading today, um, and there was NPR did, I think it was NPR did a report on it, that um, one of the reasons that we're not building new nuclear power plants is because they're expensive. Uh, so Florida would like to build new pa- nuclear power plants, but the um, estimated cost of building one is $20 billion. What? Come on. $20 billion. Like $20 really? billion. Dollars. That's insane. That's insane. Why, Bob? I mean, you know how complicated and dangerous and, and you know, there's just so much there. It's and not, with all the modern well, yeah, safety features 20, that are required, $20 billion. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I would think a couple billion. Twenty just seems like so in the stratosphere to me. Wow, well, that's, that's the problem. Twenty billion dollars. So they're trying to figure out different ways to finance it. No company is going to want to uh. outlay twenty billion dollars for a project that's going to take ten, fifteen years to complete. You know, whatever. It's just there's it's very high risk, yeah, high cost. Yeah, for a, a downstream return, but yeah, economically speaking, it's, it doesn't a, it's work. a huge barrier. Well, so why, why would what they're why would anybody build any of them? That's why. That's why, why it's not happening. So you could say, okay, well, the government can pay for it, but you know they don't. They want private industry to do it. The government doesn't want to have to you know pay for the the construction. So what Florida is considering doing, and they actually passed a law to do this, is they're going to charge electricity users for the power that they're going to consume fifteen years from now from these nuclear power plants that they're going to build. Precharge. They're wow. going to precharge them for it. Which is like a uh, is making a lot of people angry, you know, because they yeah, think because it's unfair. It's corporate welfare, <laughs> blah blah blah. But it's just dead. A, it's, you get no benefit from it if you die before then. It's a tax, you know. It's just yeah, a, it's just another way of just collecting money from people to pay for it up front, <sighs> so that corporations don't have to do it. But anyway, there's there's no good option. There's no good option. So that that's that's as much of a barrier as anti-nuclear sentiments or whatever. Um, now, you know, people want to build nuclear because of the greenhouse gas issue, but th- there's this economic issue is coming up, and I, I, have, I don't know what the solution is. But I want our own little personal reactors, right? We talked about those sheds that you bury in your backyard. Yeah, yeah. yeah your power. I want those. Yeah, like enough to su- supply like 20,000 homes, small. Cost, yeah. cost twenty five million, I believe, was the estimate for those things. They last fifty years. I love that idea. I just so, I'm so in love with that idea of just burying something like yeah, that. It's a must that, have for that the zombie could, apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, right? Jay, exactly. Exactly, Jay. And such a huge capacity too. I mean, you could you know you could run your one house for like decades or your whole community. It, they, it just seemed like yeah. such a such a great idea. Hopefully, it doesn't uh, contaminate the water table. But brah. Uh, that's for the courts to figure right. out. <laughs> That's for the courts to decide. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. It would be, be very interesting to see how this chart changes over the next 10, 20 years. So thanks for playing this week, everyone. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah thanks for letting us play. <laughs> Can't say congratulations <laughs> to anybody. Jay, do, do you have a quote for us this week? I do. I have a, a quote that actually somewhat relates to it. one of the things that we talked about today. Uh, this was a quote from Carl Sagan, and it was sent in by a listener named Leslie Ruthven. And this quote actually has a question, because this was during a, a live talk that uh, that Carl had given, and the question posed to him was, uh, As a scientist, would you deny the possibility of water having been changed into wine in the Bible? And Carl Sagan says, Deny the possibility? Certainly not. I would not deny any such possibility. But I would, of course, not spend a moment on it unless there was some evidence for it. That's Carl Sagan. 
<laughs> Carl Sagan. Come and why, on, did, why did you choose a Carl Sagan quote this week, Jay? Hmm. Well, you rooted me out, Steve. It was his birthday. <laughs> it was Carl Sagan Day. It's, it is Carl Sagan Day on uh, the 9th, November 9th, right? The great Carl Sagan. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! You gotta warn me a little. Guy, give a guy a heart attack here. You, you, you totally blew out your. Worth it. You clipped. Worth it. You clipped. Run it anyway. See your <laughs> the perfect flatness of the top and bottom of that signal. All right. Thanks, Jay. Steve, we need uh, any listener that has any. Uh, very good or extraordinary knowledge of Google or YouTube. We actually need help with our, our YouTube account. We're actually having technical difficulties. Cannot get help from Google or YouTube. Anybody that has any, uh, any way of helping, please contact me. I mean, we must have listeners that work at these companies. We so. did. I met someone that worked at Google at the last event that we went to, but, you know, who knows? A big company. You never know. Were they the janitor or something? Counting. <laughs> no, the guy was the guy was really cool, okay. but yeah. So we we have a couple of videos we'd like to get up, but yeah, we're having trouble making it happen. Yeah, it's an AdSense problem. It's an AdSense problem. Okay. So thanks for any help, and thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Steve. Thank you. Yes, yes. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website. Or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice.